So take out a copy of that word and turn in it to John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5 this morning, page 903 in the Pew Bible. Menzi, can you give me a little more juice there? I'm feeling my voice a little bit. Let's, let's crank this up a little bit and get, let's get loud. If you have not picked up on it yet, we're talking about work this morning. That's exactly what you want to talk about right now, isn't it? On this day of rest, let's talk about work. But teachers, you're almost there. The work is almost accomplished. Job well done, teachers. But some of you will work summer school. And even if you don't, the work will start right back up again in September. The work is never finished. Happy vacation. How about mothers? My wife right now is on vacation. Note the over-exaggerated, sarcastic quote fingers. There is nothing restful about solo parenting five children. I'm up here working, and it is far more restful for me than it is for her down there resting. A mother's work is never finished. And we could go on and on throughout the room and go through every type of work that is represented here, and we would have all felt the same thing at some time or another. The work is never finished. Monday morning is coming. Listen, some vacation sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. But the work will just be waiting for me when I return. The work is never finished. Now, we know that work is good. Objectively, theologically, we know that God created us for work. We know Genesis 2.15, God took the man, he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. We know that's before the fall. Work is part of the very good of God's original creation and design. We all probably have experienced the meaning and fulfillment that can come from good work and the satisfaction of a job well done. But we have all also experienced the pain and toil and frustration that comes from work and the effects of the fall. In the very next chapter of Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain or toil, you shall eat of it. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon puts words to what we have all felt. What has a man from all the toil and striving apart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the heart, night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity or futility or emptiness. So, so much of life in this world is characterized by vanity, futility, or emptiness. And yet last week we talked about eternal life. Not a quantity of life, but a quality of life. The very life of God himself in us, the abundant life, the joyful life, the contented and satisfied life. We talked two weeks ago about the weight of glory. Right? 1.7 trillion pounds of buildings in our city. It has an effect on the land and we are sinking. Right? Great weight has great impact. We are about to return to the glory of Christ and that is a weight infinitely greater than 1.7 trillion pounds. And yet, it so often seems to have such little impact on us who claim to believe and to see his glory. So we are, we're seeking to bridge this divide, this gap that often exists between our believing and our doing, 
our professing and our possessing, what we say and what we actually experience. Why doesn't the eternal weight of glory have more of an impact on us, on our lives and our hearts and our minds, our happiness? Remember, that was last week. All men seek happiness. Are you happy? And if not, why not? Part of the answer is simply that life is hard and that the Christian life is harder and that things fall apart in a fallen, sin-cursed world and it's hard to respond well to that. It's hard to rejoice in the Lord always when nothing seems to be going right. And I think that work is a perfect illustration of that. Apart from my family, there is nothing that brings me more encouragement and joy than my work. Right? This, this work. Apart from nothing, there is nothing that brings me more discouragement and sorrow than my work. This work. Why is that? Why can your work be both such a joy and such a sorrow? And what is the solution? The solution is obviously going to be work. And not your work, but the work of another. And not your ongoing, never accomplished work, but the finished, accomplished work of Christ. It is the accomplished work of Christ and the glory of Christ revealed in that accomplished work that is the solution to all of our sadnesses and sorrows, our futilities and frustrations in our work, sure, but that's just an illustration of of the rest of our lives. So let's consider together this morning Christ's work and how how it informs and applies to our work, but more importantly, to the whole of our lives. We're going to do that through three points. We're going to start point number one and see that Christ did all his work to the glory of God. That's what you are called to do. Here we're going to see Christ doing it. Point number two, we're going to see that Christ accomplished his work of glorifying God. And then point number three, we'll close and see that the Father then glorified Christ in that very work. So Christ's work was a work that glorified God, was accomplished, and then even glorified himself. And it is that work that is the key to your work and to your life now. So let's get to work. Let's get into the text. Let me read it for you. John chapter 17. I will read verses 1 through 5 again, but we're focusing on verses 4 through 5 this morning. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for the great privilege that it is to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your kindness towards us in giving us a day set apart to rest. 
to worship, to fellowship, to play. Father, most importantly, to worship and to delight in you, to honor you, to be encouraged and reminded and, and drawn back to you. Father, we pray that this time would be a means through which those things happen. I pray that this would not be a thing just for me to get through so that I could be done with my work. That this would not be a thing for all of us to get through just so we can get to lunch or get to playing or get to fun things. Father, I pray that this would be a time of focus and a time of joy and a time of encouragement and edification as we fix our minds upon Jesus Christ and what he has done and the work that he has accomplished and what that means for us. Father, we have struggled so often this week to take what we objectively know is true and apply it to our hearts and to our lives and to the difficulties uh, facing us. Father, we ask that you would help us to do that very thing in this time. Father, help me to be clear. Father, help me to be true and right in all that I say. But most importantly, Father, send your Holy Spirit to work in both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Show us Jesus Christ. Give us great joy in his person and in his accomplished work on our behalf. We ask for you to do this on our behalf now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, Christ did all his work to the glory of God. You probably recognize that. I'm just stealing the wording of our first point from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I must confess from the outside that this is a concept that I've really been wrestling with lately, eating and drinking, everyday mundane things, everything to the glory of God. Preaching sermons, listening to sermons, drinking coffee, eating pizza, playing volleyball, playing basketball, going to work, going on vacation, and on and on and on we could go. Everything to the glory of God. What does that mean? What does that really look like? The defining idea of the Reformation, the movement whose theology we so love, was actually not justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It was actually, first and foremost, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The greatest and most known catechism question ever written, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is your end, your primary purpose, the first and foremost thing you are to aim at and to make the goal of your life, the glory of the all-glorious God. Thus, you are to do every single thing that you do to the glory of that all-glorious God. And I think that a lot of my problems and a lot of the problems that we discussed in the beginning are ultimately rooted here. Let's see if we can sort this out. This is our fourth week in the high priestly prayer. This is our last week in part one of that prayer. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is praying. He is speaking. He is pouring out his soul to his Father moments before his betrayal, suffering, and death. And he is doing all of that in the hearing of his disciples and thus also in our hearing. And we've talked about a lot already. We have considered priorities. Prayers reveal priorities. What do you pray for? What do you most pray for and ask God 
to do. Right? That reveals your priorities and your loves. Well, what does the Christ, the God-man, the perfect man, pray for? It's glory. Glory is Christ's priority. Glory is God's priority. What is it? We've been defining it. God's glory is his, his weightiness. It's his greatness, his significance. It's the sum total of all that he is as God. It is his infinite excellence, his infinite intrinsic worth, his infinite intrinsic beauty, his majestic, transcendent, incomprehensible goodness and greatness. God is great. God is good. God is glorious. He is infinitely significant and weighty, and therefore everything else depends upon him and revolves around him. And I said this two weeks ago, there's no truth more important for you to learn and love and live and struggle and work in light of than the glory of God. He is the center. You are not. It is all about him. It is not all about you. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so we've seen that that's what this whole first part of Christ's prayer is all about. Look at it again. Christ prays in verse 1. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now we're back to that again in our passage in verse 4. I glorified you. So we've just defined the noun glory. God is glorious. He has glory. But we just read three verbs. Glorify, glorify glorified. What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify or to give glory? That's what we're really wrestling with here. What does it mean for me and you to do all to the glory of God? What does it mean that our chief end is to glorify God? And so our starting point here is that Christ himself did all his work to the glory of God. What does that mean? How did he do that. Well, cheat down and look at verse 6. This is next time. Remember, Christ prays first for himself, then he begins to pray for his disciples. In verse 6, he says about them, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That's how. Skip down to the very end of the prayer and look at verse 26. So remember, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us, the church. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's how. That's how the Son glorified the Father. That's what it means to glorify God. It is to manifest his name. It is to make his name, it is to make him known. And John has been making this clear from the very beginning. This is who Jesus is and what he is all about. 1-1, one, one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I hope you know this by now, but what do words do? Words reveal and words relate. They reveal and relate. I'm sure I got that from somewhere. I don't know where I got it from. I googled words reveal and relate. No results found. So I'm claiming 
that one for myself, though I'm sure it came from all kinds of different places. But the point is, this is what words do. They, they reveal and they relate. And this is who Jesus is and what he does as the word. Chapter 114. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Oh, sorry. No one has ever seen God. Semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus the Christ, he has made him known. So you see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh, has come to make God known. And as God is the God of all glory, as God inherently has all that intrinsic godness and greatness, to make the all-glorious God known is to make glory known. To reveal God is necessarily to reveal glory. And so every single thing that Jesus did, he did to the glory of God. For the purpose of making that glory known. To reflect and reveal that glory to those around him. Jesus glorified God in his submitting to the law. Jesus glorified God in his submitting to his earthly parents. He glorified God in his submitting to baptism. He glorified God in his submitting to temptation in the wilderness. He glorified God in his proclaiming the gospel of God. He glorified God in his teaching, in his healing, in his loving, in his rebuking, in his praying, in his eating, in his sleeping. He glorified God in his suffering, in his dying. He glorified God in his rising Everything is the point. Literally, whatever he did, he did all to the glory of God. And listen, we're getting to the most important part in point two. We're getting to the substitution and the sacrifice, the atonement, and the accomplished. But Christ is also example. He came to represent us. He came to be us. He came to do all that we were to do. And in so doing, not only save us, but also show us what that eternal life we were talking about last week looks like. It is a life lived to the glory of God. And Christ is our perfect example. And so Paul can rightly turn and say to us, you Christians, you all, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so that means that we are to manifest God's name. We are to make him known. We are to be revealing and reflecting God's glory to those around us. We are to be like Christ and think like Christ and feel like Christ and live like Christ so that we can reveal to others, oh so imperfectly, just a little bit of what God is like. Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. You see that? They are to see us and our good works, and not just works, but but character and attitude and, and everything. And they are to see that and give glory not to us, but to our Father. Because it is his light. It is his life in us that is showing and shining forth. So we glorify him 
and do whatever we do to his glory when God's excellence and beauty and love are made manifest through our lips and through our lives so that others may see him. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of your works, all of your work for the express purpose of making him known. How's that going for you? Is this your chief end? We desperately need to get to point number two. Let's go. Point number two. Christ accomplished his work of glorifying God. And this is the key. Come back to me if I have lost you. This is the most important part here in this second point. Look at verse four again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So there is a given work, it is a glorifying work, and it is an accomplished work. And it is this that can transform our understanding and experience of work and life. We have not yet specifically defined the work that was given by the Father and accomplished by the Son. So we need to do that. What what was the work? There's actually some debate about this. Work or works is an important theme in John. The Greek word is ergon. Maybe you have heard the term ergonomic. There are ergonomic desks and chairs and keyboards and such. If you work in an office, you're familiar with ergonomics. It's it's sort of the, the science or the study of work and workplace optimization. It's about efficiency and fit. It's working to make things work well. John, too, is concerned with ergonomics, but on a far greater and grander scale. Let's consider some of his uses of this same word. We can't consider them all because Jesus talks about this a lot. Flip back and let's start in chapter 10. Look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 32. John 10, 32. Jesus has just claimed, I am the Father or one. The Jews have just, again, picked up stones to stone him because they understand what he's claiming And Jesus replies in 1032, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So remember, Jesus had just healed the man born blind in chapter 9. So here it seems that his works, plural, is specifically a reference to his supernatural signs, his many healings and and feedings. And he's, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. The Jews understand again what he's claiming, and so they say in 1033, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. That's the fundamental claim of our faith, that Jesus being a man is also God. But they don't believe, and so Jesus says to them in verse 38, 1038, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So, first and foremost, the works can refer generally to just that which Jesus does and then a little bit more specifically to that which Jesus supernaturally does, the the signs. Now go to chapter 5. Similarly, look at 536. I'm going to keep giving you scripture passages so I can drink water. 536, Jesus says this, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works 
that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So it seems like Jesus is talking about the same thing there. The Father has given works to the Son. This seems to be the signs. And they are witness-bearing works. And Jesus goes on and he talks about these works, plural, a number of times throughout the book. But our text, 17.4, Jesus says, work, singular. And Jesus only says, work, singular, one other time in the whole book. Maybe serving as sort of bookends before we get to the work itself. So now look at chapter 4, verse 34. Here it is, 434. This is in the context of Christ's loving and revealing interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, the disciples had left. The disciples have come back. They're encouraging Jesus to eat some food. And he responds that he has food to eat that they do not, do not know about. Classic disciples, they're confused. Somebody else bring Jesus food. Kind of what's, what's going on here? And Jesus replies in 434, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his Work. It's the only other time Jesus says work, singular. What is the work, singular? Go back to chapter 5. I'm just trying to keep you awake. Look at 519. I love hearing those pages. Excellent. 519. Jesus has just healed the paralytic man. The Jews are upset because Jesus is again making himself equal with God. Jesus replies, 519. Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What are the greater works? Or I'm arguing, what is the work? Singular, look at 521. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In 6.30, the Jews will ask, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? And Jesus replies in 6.33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Life is the work. Jesus is life. The giving of life is the work. Remember, that's what we've been doing these last two weeks. 17.2, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Last week, verse 3, the nature of that eternal life is knowing God. The means of that eternal life is knowing God. Through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the work to give life. Why is this the work? Why do we need life? We can never forget this. Nothing makes sense without this. And it's made clear for us in the first use of the word work in the Gospel of John. Last time, 319. Go to 319, and then I'll give you a break. Then you can just sit back and enjoy. 319. Right on the tails of the giving of the Son to give eternal life to those who believe in him. Why would he have to give eternal life? 319. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You see, we have a works problem, a wicked works problem. The world's works are wicked, all of them, ultimately. And that's a problem. That's the problem, and that was our problem. Wicked works or just sin, the wages of which is death. That's why we need life. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That's a huge statement. I was tempted to go on for like a 20-minute tangent to that. It can mean a number of things. I'll give you a two-minute tangent on that. Remember John 5:44 a while ago? Remember it with Roy Williams, our former basketball coach. Uh, remember Roy Williams, I hate cool. My daughters have never let me forget. I can't say anything is cool anymore. Just like with that in passing. They're like, ah, 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 you hate cool. Um, so they've, they've really let me, they've stuck me with that one. But in that sermon on 5:44, I defined cool as seeking glory from men. Look at me, praise me, recognize me, see how great I am. And in John 5.44, Jesus is rebuking the religious authorities for refusing to come to him that they may have life, refusing to believe. And he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, to fall short of God's glory, most simply, is to not receive that glory that comes from God, that approval or acceptance that comes from God, and to not receive that because of our sin. But I think that to fall short of God's glory is broader than that, too. I think it also means that we were created in His image. We were created like Him. Created, as we saw in point one, to reflect and reveal that glory. And in our sin, we lost that, and we failed to display the glory of the God who made us. We refused to do it. And instead, we sought to display our own glory. Instead of working for the glory that comes from God, we sought the glory that comes from man. And in turning away from the glorious God of life, we chose death. That's why the work that Christ came to accomplish was the giving of eternal life. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We knew God, but we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. He exchanged the glory of God for the glory of self. And listen, that's why we're miserable. That's why things fall apart. That's why nothing satisfies. Our entire orientation is off. We have denied design. We have turned away from the life. John 6 again. Back to the bread of life. He's just fed the 5,000. That's supernatural. That's amazing. It's the teaching. That's the point of all of this. And in John 6, 27, Jesus says this. I think this is such an important statement for you and for your work and for your life. John 6, 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Stop, because that's so important. What are you working for, striving for, looking for, living for? 
Uh, what are you primarily pursuing? Are you primarily pursuing that which perishes? It should be logical. We are often not logical because sin makes us stupid. Sin affects all aspects of our person, including our mind, our thinking, and our reasoning. Illustration. Say I were to offer you $100,000 today, right now. All yours to do whatever you want with it. Awesome, right? That's a good deal. That is a lot of money. That is food worth working for. And the working in this sense is just receiving it. But there's one stipulation. And there's a second option as well. The one stipulation is that the $100,000 expires. It perishes at midnight. Use it or lose it. Now, I am confident that you could. Right? None of us would have any problem spending hundred grand today. Just give me a couple of minutes and I'm done. No problem. But hold on, there is a second option. This is like a game show. You get to choose. If you don't take the $100,000 and if you wait until tomorrow, I will give you $10,000 every single day until the day that you die. That's a lot more money. Hey, ten days in, you've matched the hundred grand already. And every day after that, you've surpassed it. $3,650,000 every single year. If you'll just wait for tomorrow and not take the immediate money that perishes and instead take the money that endures to the end of your life. Every single one of us would take the second option. Every single one of us recognizes the absolute foolishness of taking the 100,000 now when you can have millions and millions and millions tomorrow. But that's the one thing. That's the thing that every single one of us does every day when we in our sin work for the food that perishes and not for the food that endures to eternal life when we choose this life and that which is temporary pleasing at the cost of this life and that which is eternally pleasing. Much of our misery, our ongoing discontent and dissatisfaction comes from this, our tendency to still work for the food that perishes, to still work to receive glory from one another. And why do we do that? We know big picture sin. We know that's why. But it's also in part because we struggle to truly and fully believe this second point. We either struggle to truly and fully believe that this is the work that we needed done for us, that the one thing that we really need is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, the very God of life in us, life in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. We struggle to believe that that's the priority. And that that's infinitely better and more satisfying than any food or glory here. Or we struggle to believe that Christ has accomplished the work. Well, we just sang it. Jesus paid it all. But how much this week have we lived as if there was something less to be paid or to be proved? I think this is such a key and important point that Christ has accomplished the work. The last thing that Jesus says in John before his resurrection, 1930, it is 
finished. It's the same root word as the accomplished of 17.4. He accomplished the work. He finished the work. And then that resurrection in the very next chapter proves it. Death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. And since his work was to come and take on our sin and to bear it and to suffer and die for it, and since when he took it on and then he took it down into the grave, he left it there. All of it. He came back. It did not. That's why Psalm 103.10 is my favorite verse that I come back to again and again and again. He does not deal with me according to my sin. How is that possible? You have to understand that a holy and just God cannot ignore sin. So often I think we think of forgiveness as excusing it. Like someone does something that they know is wrong and they confess it. It didn't really bother you. So you're like, eh, no big deal. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. That's not forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness is. That's not what God does. It is not God sweeping sin under the rug. It is not God saying, hey, don't worry about it. No big deal. No, worry about it. Big deal. Such a big deal that the only way for anyone to be forgiven and moved from death to life was for God himself to come to take on flesh so that he could take on our sin and suffer and die for it in our place and rise again. The sin has to be paid for. Justice requires. The death had to be dealt with. And that's why Christ has come. That's the work. And he has accomplished it. And so we must learn to love that and to live in light of that and to begin to believe that that's it. That's the thing. And it's taken care of. And it's accomplished. So in that verse 6 that we were considering and following and meandering, Jesus says, all right, so don't work for this food that perishes. The verb is then implied in the second part. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, what does that mean? Oh, he tells us. 628. The Jews say to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus says in verse Uh, 28, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Faith is the work, our work, our response. And not just initial saving faith and definitely not faith as in just believing some stuff about God, but biblical faith as in initial and ongoing trusting belief Believing trust, giving ourselves entirely into the hands of this Christ who has accomplished his work of giving himself entirely for us, that eternal life may be given abundantly to us. Christ has accomplished his work. Believe. Now, notice specifically the wording of our second point here Christ accomplished the work. We just talked about the work of giving eternal life, bearing our sins, rising again, and giving us eternal life, of course. But Christ accomplished the work here. What I want to draw your attention to is that he accomplished the work of glorifying God. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to specifically see in reference to your ongoing work and life struggles and sorrows and disappointments and dissatisfaction. This has been really helpful to me. It is this that is the solution to our struggle to understand what it means to do all to the glory of God. And think with me. Why do you get down and discouraged? 
about work, about life, about anything. Again, don't just look at the, the, the fruit of the discouragement or the emotion or whatever you're feeling. Trace it back to the source and to the heart. Why? Why do you get down and discouraged? I'll use myself as an example. Let's speak personally for a moment. It's a thing, the, the pastor's Monday morning blues. By the way, there's a great old song, uh, 1964, Mississippi John Hurt, classic southern country blues, Delta blues. I woke up this morning, I woke up this morning, I woke up this morning with the Monday morning blues. John Hurt, go check it out. Why do pastors do that? You read, you Google, you read all the articles. There's all kinds of articles uh, about this. And it's, it is a real thing. There are a number of factors, but one of the main ones, one of the main ones, it's, it's, is pride. It's, it's the pastor's unique ability to make a sermon that is supposedly all about God, actually all about self. And then, combined with that, is our all-too-frequent tendency to forget to forget, I can forget while preaching that Christ has accomplished the work, I can forget that Christ has accomplished the work. And because we, even as pastors, are not yet fully satisfied with the glory that comes from God by grace, we can't help but look around and see sleep and angry faces and bored faces and then hear nothing and have no evidence whatsoever that anything has happened and we can get discouraged. Why? Because we're still trying to make it about us. Because I'm still trying to find satisfaction in my work and prove that I'm enough and do it by preaching brilliant sermons that slay everyone in the spirit, right? God help me. My only help and my only hope is to believe that God has accomplished the work, that I am, I am fully justified, that God is fully satisfied that I have the glory that comes from God, that I have the very life of God himself in me. And so I don't have to look for that somewhere else. I have it. I don't have to strive to prove myself. I don't have to get discouraged in my always mixed motives and my failures to perfectly do everything to the glory of God because Christ has already perfectly done everything to the glory of God for me in my place. I fell short of God's glory. I continue to fall short of God's glory because I remain a sinner until glorification. Christ restored me to God's glory, though. And it's when I can see that and love that and live in light of that that I find real freedom and joy and life in peace. It doesn't excuse me from working and striving to do all that I can more and more to the glory of God. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. It's this very fact that motivates me and empowers me to do that very thing and work all the harder for the right reasons. You see, Christ finished his work so that we can start ours. Christ finished work fuels our ongoing work. And again, just to be clear, not in any way a work of seeking justification or proving ourselves or earning God's favor, but work in the sense of our response to his perfect accomplished work, our work of ingratitude, living for him and loving him and doing all that we do to the glory of God. In chapter 9, when the disciples ask Jesus about a man blind from birth who sinned, this man or, or his parents, who was it? Who, why was he born blind? And Jesus answers in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned. 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes on to say, catch the pronoun, we, disciples, we, plural, but I think that includes us, we must work the works of him who sent me. Again, we, you, you and me. 15.8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And it's God's grace and it's the all-glorifying Christ that makes that possible. And remember what that fruit is. It's, it's simply Christ-like character and conduct. This is how we bring God glory. And that's what God has promised to do in us, to conform us to the image of his Son and to bring that perfect work, our glorification, our Christ-likeness, to completion. And do you know what that's going to do? A lot of things. But first and foremost, it's going to bring great glory to Christ himself. Very quickly, point number three. Let me state it, and then let's try to apply. Point number three, the Father glorified Christ in his work. Let me just read verse five. Here's the conclusion of Christ's prayer for himself. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Christ was always the all-glorious Son of God. He laid aside none of his extrinsic glory, his godness, but he did lay aside his extrinsic glory, the showing and the shining forth of that glory. And his desire here, his right and righteous desire, is to have that glory restored for his name to be made manifest, for him to be made known as he is in all his glorious and beautiful perfection. And the brilliance of the gospel is that it's shown in the cross. It's there that we see the glory of Christ, perfect in love, willing to come and suffer and die for wretched, unsatisfied, glory-stealing sinners like us. But he did it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. In his dying, in his rising, in his ascending, in his ruling and reigning, now in his returning, in the revelation of him by the Spirit through this living and active word, Christ, the Son of God, is glorified. Have you seen it? Have you seen him in all his glory? I mean, he really, I, mean, I know this sounds trite and this sounds simplistic, but he really is the solution to my Pastor Monday morning blues. He is the solution to your feeling of work futility and frustration. He is the solution to your life disappointments and discouragements, sadnesses, and sorrows. Look at who he is and look at what he has done. What if it's all true? What does it do? What would that really mean? For you, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that it's a great tragedy that we who are princes so often live like paupers. He says in the, the opening of his classic, uh, Spiritual Depression, you really must read it. He says this, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. He goes on, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums. And too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy 
There is no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. Those are hard words. Remember, we're, we're commanded to do all that we do to the glory of God. We've seen what that means. We, we glorify him when his excellence and beauty and love is made manifest through our lips and through our lives so that others may see it. And so that means I got to get over myself. That means I got to stop walking around grumpy and angry looking. That means I've got to stop so focusing on myself and my struggles and then revealing only sadness and sorrow in my lips and life because it's a lie. Because God is so good and he has been so good to me and at some point it's pure and plain unbelief when I refuse to see that and rest in that and seek to be glad in him. I mean, I fly back down tomorrow. I've been preparing myself to be around extended family, uh, to be around some, un, uh, some non-believers. And I've been like, getting myself ready by, by rehearsing and going back through some scripture memory, making sure I've got those things lodged in there correctly. Philippians 2, uh, Psalm 16, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not irritable, love is not irritable, love is not irritable, love is not irritable. Right, I'm going to say it again and again and again. And then I'm praying that God would work through those truths, his living and active word by his spirit, to produce and demonstrate the joy of the Lord that is my strength so that other people can see that. So that through uh, what I'm saying and and what I'm doing, that those around me would see that, that I am his and that it is Christ who lives in me and see hopefully just a little bit of what he is like through me. And my only hope, and your only hope, is to start with the fact that Christ has accomplished the work. Which is great news, because again, all that I just said about heading south and demonstrating Christ, I'm going to fail. There will be grumpiness at some point, there will be irritability, there will be struggle. You will continue to struggle with sorrow and sadness at times. I will continue to struggle with the Monday morning blues. But Christ has accomplished the work. And the Father himself loves us. And he knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. Know him as that. As gracious, loving, patient, heavenly Father. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, last Lloyd-Jones quote, It's Lydia's fault. She gave me a big Lloyd-Jones book, so blame Lydia. I'm giving you lots of Lloyd-Jones. But he says this famously. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That is profoundly true and has been very helpful for me. We have Psalm 42 this week. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. See what's going on? Take your soul and yourself in hand and talk to yourself. Be very intentional and active in taking these truths, these living and active truths in God's word, the the accomplished work of Christ and the Father's love for you and your perfect acceptance and security in him and preach those truths to yourself again and again and again. This person is annoying me. 
I want to be short, and I want to be rude to this person. Love is not irritable. Christ has accomplished the work. Christ lives in me. I don't get to do that. What does it look like for me to put this other person's interests before my own and to love this person? Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. Ask for God's help in prayer. And then when you fail, confess and repent and pick back up and start again. All because of and in light of the accomplished work of Christ. So that we can bring glory and show just a little bit of who this God is and how good he is to us and what he has done for us through our lips and through our lives. And remember Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15.8, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help me. I always preach better than I practice. Father, I pray for myself and for every single one of us in this room that you would give us much joy in the accomplished, finished, complete work of Christ. I pray that you would give us the eyes to see reality from your perspective, from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of what we eternally deserved, separation and suffering and hell, the justice that that would have been for our sin and our falling short of your glory, that we could feel the weight of what that is sometimes. But more importantly, Father, show us Christ. Show us the eternity of joy and of life and of pleasure that is found in him and and with you, and that that has been given to us entirely freely by the work of your son himself coming to take our place and take our sin and and take our death. Father, forgive us for how bored and forgetful we can get with this, the fundamental truth. Father, give us great joy in the gospel again. Give us great gladness in, in Jesus Christ. Father, make us a happy people. Father, not a people who shove our heads in the sand and pretend like things aren't hard and don't care for one another well and don't weep with those who weep. But Father, like Paul, those who can be sorrowful yet, yet always rejoicing. Father, who can rejoice even in trials and rejoice in you always. Not because things aren't really, really hard and we're sometimes really, really sad. But because of this truth. Because of eternal life. And because of grace and goodness and glory. Father, give us eyes, please, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And please... Draw hearts and minds in this room to him. In Jesus' name, amen.